The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, it's Thanksgiving Day, but we're still here on Squawk so here are your headlines. China warns of retaliation as it summons the U.S. ambassador in response to President Trump's decision to sign legislation backing Hong Kong protesters. The dispute threatens to put a strain on trade talks as Deer & Co. blames the tensions for its latest profit warning, sending the shares in the world's largest farm equipment maker sharply lower. A key YouGov poll puts Boris Johnson's Conservatives on course for a majority in the upcoming election. While Labour accuses the government of putting the National Health Service on the table in US trade talks. Making waves, Telefonica announces a business overhaul aimed at raising more than 2 billion euros a year by 2022. While Orange plays down reports Deutsche Telekom is eyeing a tie-up with the French company. Stock market stateside still trading higher on this day. Gift, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. This is uh, the sort of market that many will probably be discussing over dinner. Very strong record numbers for the Nasdaq, S&P and the Dow. Uh, the performance has been incredible given we still don't have phase one of a trade deal. And the latest that we've heard that has knocked some confidence in the trading session today has been that uh, US President Donald Trump has signed into law legislation backing pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Now, China's ministry, foreign ministry, has warned of unspecified firm countermeasures uh, in response. So uh, something that investors are concerned may stall the ability to put pen to paper on a phase one trade deal. But uh, as you can see, very strong across the board for these markets. Let's take a look at how the dollar has been trading as a result. A little bit risk off is what we've had in the, the session. Japanese yen has been a clear beneficiary in a bit of a flight to safe havens at this point. But keep in mind, with Thanksgiving taking place in the States, uh, liquidity will be challenged anyway at this point. So uh, look for some moves based on low volumes. Also worth noting, euro sterling picking up a little bit of steam in the morning session, 129.35. And there's been that YouGov poll we mentioned the headlines that suggest Conservatives will have a decent majority that's been supportive of sterling trade. A quick look at uh, how we are shaping off on some of the commodity trades weaker. Trade very much linked to this story. Brent, WTI both reversing. WTI the most down almost half of a percent in session. A quick look at what we've got on the Asian markets. Uh, the early trade for the region is negative, as you can see. Red splashing up across the boards for the Chinese markets to Hong Kong down two tenths of a percent. And South Korea also joining the reversal taking place. The only cause as a result is that investors fear the ability to reach a phase one trade deal now because of this messaging on Hong Kong. You can see we are shaping up for a weaker day. 29 points to the downside anticipated for the Zetradax. 20 down for the FTSE here in the UK. Stay. Thank you very much, Karen. OK, let us uh, move on. China has summoned the US ambassador after President Trump signed legislation which backed pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. The bill is set to test relations between Washington and Beijing as both sides race to complete a phase one trade deal. Well, Emily Tan filed this report from Hong Kong.
Hong Kong and China have denounced the newly signed U.S. legislation as gross interference in its internal affairs and a violation of international law. China has summoned the U.S. ambassador in China. China's foreign ministry said it resolutely opposes the U.S. law on Hong Kong and will take firm countermeasures, adding that the U.S. will have to shoulder all consequences if it continues this way. And U.S. attempts to interfere in Hong Kong affairs are doomed to fail. In a statement, the Hong Kong government, for its part, says it strongly opposes and regrets that President Trump signed legislation backing protesters, saying that the legislation will send the wrong signal and won't help ease Hong Kong's situation. It is interference in internal affairs that is unnecessary and groundless, and that the new law will damage the relationship between Hong Kong and the U.S. Trump had earlier expressed reservations about the bill because of ongoing trade talks. Now that the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act has been signed into law, the State Department will have to certify annually that Hong Kong retains enough autonomy to justify its special trading status. In a statement, President Trump said, I signed these bills out of respect for President Xi, China and the people of Hong Kong. They are being enacted in the hope that leaders and representatives of China and Hong Kong will be able to amicably settle their differences, leading to long-term peace and prosperity for all. Hong Kong markets remain cautious and are trading down. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Bert Kalein has joined us, senior Eurozone economist at ING. But markets have been waiting for this trade deal. You can see the appetite for risk on assets out there in anticipation that both sides clearly need to reach an agreement. That's been the tone for, for weeks and weeks. Yet overnight, this move by President Trump to sign into law legislation that effectively means the State Department has to check over the autonomy of the Hong Kong territory at least once a year. How difficult is this going to be? to achieve a trade deal when this type of legislation has been signed? Well, it, I mean, it feels like we're taking a step back, right? Um, over the past days, we've had a lot of optimism about uh, moving towards a trade deal. Uh, we've heard optimistic um, uh, things out of the, uh, out of the president, uh, saying that uh, the U.S. might indeed uh, be getting closer in the final throes of signing a deal. It feels like this is likely going to have an impact, but it's quite early to tell whether indeed uh, this means that trade talks will be put back on hold, for example. Um, we do feel like it, it could still take a while before um, it becomes very necessary uh, from a timetable perspective, at least towards the U.S. elections um, for the U.S. to sign anything. Um, so it could still be that there's quite some time. Can we just delve into that motivation? Because one view is that with a weakening U.S. economy, President Trump clearly needs to have a trade deal coming into an election year. But the data that we've seen doesn't necessarily suggest that we're in the, the deep throes of uh, heading towards a recession with some of the, the stagnation in the data. In fact, we've seen a little bit of improvement stateside. So does President Trump need a trade deal at this point? That's right, especially if you look at those uh, third quarter GDP numbers. They came in quite strong yesterday, a second estimate. Um, underlying data quite strong for durables, for example. Uh, so that means that the U.S. indeed seems to have some time. Uh, at the same time, um, there are some signs out there um, that the U.S. economy continues to weaken. Um, so, of course, we're not heading to a recession that quickly in the United States. Um, it doesn't feel like it's a, a Germany, for example, that's sort of on a, the brink of a recession or not. Um, but it does feel like, like the U.S. economy is weakening at the moment. And the question, of course, is where the economy is in 2020, not where it is right now. Um, just a quick word on the, the former of the two stories that you and Karen have just covered. Um, I think it's almost very elegant. And actually, the president probably was quite willing so that he can show he's tough uh, on supporting Hong Kong. But actually, it doesn't necessarily, unless there are thin skins in Beijing, i.e. people are concerned about this uh, in terms of what it means of internal interference in Hong Kong. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't affect China as such. It's affecting 
well, it does affect China, but it doesn't affect the mainland China. It's about Hong Kong. It's about Hong Kong leaders. It's about re-examining annually the Hong Kong status. And don't forget, there are those in mainland China who are quite pleased to see Hong Kong taken down a peg or two, as we saw over the Hong Kong exchanges trying to vie for the London Stock Exchange. So it doesn't necessarily meaningfully have to hurt China, does it? This, this signing of this legislation from the president, it just depends on what people's attitudes are to it. I think it's very much a diplomatic step. Um, and the question really is how it translates into the trade talks at the moment. Um, it could very well be that it has spillover effect. Uh, but indeed, it's quite early to tell whether indeed we're now going to see um, uh, another step back taken, uh, perhaps taking it slow. Well, it on is a negative. One country, two systems. So effectively, you're taking issue with the way one of those systems is working by putting legislation into place into the United States. So I think it is a, it's a story of saving face for the Chinese and it would be perceived no, as negative domestically. No, I think I mean, this again, it's very specific about people in Hong Kong who abuse human rights. It's not talking about mainland China again, is it? It's talking about, dare I say it, the Hong Kong government or Hong Kong police, isn't it? Who, they, would, they would be the only ones who potentially would be uh, focused in, on this, the system they? is operating effectively that there's no outside influence mm. from the Chinese side that uh, hasn't been overreach from Beijing, which then obviously suggests that there's something wrong with that overreach from the Chinese. So okay. you start drawing those links back, you can see why the Chinese take offence. I mean, one should say the Chinese foreign ministry, as, as we say, seriously accused the U Washington seriously interfering with Chinese internal affairs. That is the Chinese side of the equation. In terms of the trade deal, um, when we get comprehensive phase one, let's, let's say we do get comprehensive phase one, what will that mean for what's left on the table for phase two and three? I'm, I'm very confused. Are you as confused as me? A little bit. I mean, it's always difficult to tell what's really happening uh, at the negotiating table in Beijing and, and, and D.C., obviously. Um, it looks like there are still quite a, uh, uh, quite a few steps to go. Um, it really is called phase one for, uh, for a good reason, I would say. Um, mm. And if we look at the demands that have been on the table, uh, especially from the U.S. side, then it feels like there's still a lot open that needs to be covered in a phase two or three but, but stage. But what is quite exciting about phase one, potentially, if you are looking for reinvigoration of world trade, is that it looks like both sides want a lot of tariffs taken off the table, which presumably that in itself would galvanize more trade between the two parties. Absolutely. It would be very positive for world trade. Um, it's not just between the two parties. It's also Europe that could profit from that. Um, so I think that people are really looking for some of those tariffs to be taken off the table and especially the threat of more tariffs uh, coming in. Um, if that is taken off the table, it would be a very positive sign. We're still witnessing here two very different scenarios. One where we get a trade deal and that provides a growth mechanism. Two, we don't get a trade deal and perhaps it sets the scene for more central bank involvement in 2020. Which course do you think the Federal Reserve is going to be forced to take and what type of ramification could both of those have for markets? Because often we've seen in recent times, good news is bad news. The central bank intervention is very supportive for the stock market. If we do have a trade deal and there's less central bank interference or, or support for the markets, then would that necessarily mean lower ranges for the stock market? And how does it play out in 2020 in your view? That's, it's a very interesting point. Obviously, um, uh, from an economic perspective, we would all be quite keen to see global growth um, uh, reinvigorated a little bit. And I think that you could see uh, somewhat of a, of a at least modest recovery um, in growth if indeed uh, some of the tariffs would be taken off the table, if we were getting to a more benign trade environment over the course of the, of, uh, of the next year. 
Um, but the question is how strong growth will actually come out of that. I, we're expecting that, at least in Europe, but also for the United States, even with some trade deal on the table, um, we're not expecting that all of the troubles will be um, uh, taken away completely. So we expect that there will be somewhat of a subdued recovery, in which even then the Fed might still be able to, uh, uh, to, to have to step in. Well, let's take the scenario where the trade deal isn't solved and we are now facing a December 15 deadline where fresh tariffs go into place and that puts a further break on economies globally. What do you think the overall impact is and is there any ability for central banks to offset what is another clear negative for growth? Well, I mean, I would say that there, when you look at the Fed, they've clearly uh, put rate cuts on pause. Um, but if we were to see um, the trade war flare up again and we were to see the December 15 tariffs come into place, um, then it could well be that that pause is going to be somewhat shorter than some people in the markets are now expecting. Um, aren't we having a slow, aren't we due a slowdown anyway? Aren't we due a pause? I mean, this is the thing, uh, those of us have been around longer than 10 minutes, which includes both of you two as well. We used to have things called recessions. We used to have things called uh, inflation. Like, aren't we due some form of resetting that the central banks don't try and douse very quickly? Isn't it healthy to have a, a little bit of a clearing out in some situations? I'm not sure whether we're at that point yet where it would be healthy for recession. I'm not sure that we would ever get a healthy recession. Um, it's never great to have a recession. Unemployment going up is never something that we would be we would be so aiming for. Is it healthy say. as the alternative to have enlarged, engorged uh, central bank balance sheet? Is it healthy to have more negative interest rates? Is it healthy for um, governments who have stunningly large debt to GDPs and deficits already to spend more money? Because those are the remedies we're being taught, we're told that will be the remedies to uh, if we don't want to slow down. Well, that's right. Well, I mean, we already have negative rates in large parts of the global economy, right? I mean, if we look towards Europe, sure. uh, we have sure. them. But what I'm asking you is, is if, if, if the solutions are fiscal, which is piling debt upon debt, with few notable exceptions, um, or they are monetary, which is either more balance sheet purchases or interest rate cuts. Those are the only solutions I'm being told are on the table. Well, the, the difficult thing is, I mean, whether it's healthy or not, we're getting into some more extreme solutions that we're going to need, given the fact that the slow growth environment that we're currently in um, has forced central banks to get into these negative interest rate situations. Now, the question is, healthy or not, the alternative is a situation where you would raise rates, which means that you would effectively cut the, the weak economic environment that we're already seeing off of some investments that we're actually uh, in dire need of. So the difficulty is, what is the counterfactual um, to the negative interest rate? Second, who's in dire need of investment that can't get it at the moment that has it at credit worthiness? Not Nestle, negative interest rates. Not, I mean, I've been doing a little game recently. It's the best game going. It's like I look at bond, uh, corporate bond yields on newly issued paper when one names a company. And I'll tell you what, they're all raising as much money as they want at virtually zero money, as indeed our government. So tell me, who is in dire need of credit? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're, the global economy is in need of more investment. We're not in need of more yeah. credit. Um, so therefore, if there are people that are investing at these low rates we're seeing right now, then that is favorable. And the question is, do we want to cut them off from investing more yeah. either? Okay, Look, this is a fascinating debate. Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, we will move on just for the moment. Karen, what are you looking Can at? Can we talk about that uh, GDP number out yesterday? The US economy grew more than expected in the third quarter after GDP growth for the period was revised up to 2.1%. An initial estimate had seen the economy grow at 1.9%. The updated reading alongside a rise in consumer spending and a rebound in durable goods orders may offset fears of sub-2% GDP growth in the fourth quarter. Here's, here's the thing, just looking away from the situation before I even read this next one, I haven't even seen what my read says, but the world population, it ain't getting any smaller, is it? 
the world middle class not getting any smaller. So you've got more sophisticated, well, no, that's not true, not more sophisticated, more Western taste, then definitely not more sophisticated. There's certainly more higher carbs and higher fat. So you've got more food being consumed, more protein being consumed, more carbohydrates being consumed, a greater population and a greater middle class, yeah? Yes. Deer & Co has blamed trade tensions for its decision to lower its 2020 outlook. The world's largest agricultural equipment maker also cited poor weather conditions. For the warning, as American farmers avoided making big money purchases, shares in Deer & Co closed over 4% lower. So all of those things I mentioned, and yet they're blaming trade tensions. Well, it's trickle down, isn't it? You've got uh, what is uh, recessionary conditions for some of the farmers based on the tariffs, and they're not making orders for new equipment. They're having to get by with what they've got. You okay. might be right longer term. But did you want to come and brief on demographics or you, we want to leave that one? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that this is exemplary of what the trade war is doing, right? It's the uncertainty that you see uh, whether tariffs are going to be in place or not uh, that make investments viable or not. And yeah. that, I think, is something where you see that just orders are just not coming through. All right, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Energy, which is the German energy group, uh, has uh, cut its outlook for its retail division, which will soon be part of E.ON, as a price cap on the British market continues to weigh on profit. It now expects two to 300 million euros, previously 300 to 400 million euros. So that is quite damning. Uh, the shares in energy, not as particularly high yield for a utility company, 3.14% yield. You might have expected to see more. Year to date, the shares before today are up 9.5%. I will be fascinated to see how energy trades today. Coming up on the show, a continental shift. The EU's incoming commissioner promises a fresh start while Christine Lagarde seeks an ECB climate change mandate. More after the break. Oh, and the podcast, it's another winner. Uh, it's our Thanksgiving special. <laughs> it might be. Uh, find our podcast on Spotify, Apple or CNBC.com and get ready for the trading day ahead on your way to work. But If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, European lawmakers have approved Ursula von der Leyen's new commission with 461 MEPs in favour. I wonder what did the Brexit guys vote against? I'm sure they did vote against. Uh, the vote paves the way for the commission president-elect to take over on December 1st. Feels like it's been going on forever, doesn't it? The handover from Juncker. Uh, von der Leyen has pledged to launch a transformation plan. They always do, including a climate policy package. Christine Lagarde is reportedly looking to put climate change on the agenda for the ECB. That's according to the FT, which suggests the Bundesbank Jens Weidmann would be critical of the move by the new central bank president. Bert Cullen is with us, senior Eurozone economist at ING. Bert, let's just continue our conversation, but talk about the Eurozone, because you've been doing a little bit of work about how northern and southern governors on the our council will vote, and we know as Christian Lagarde takes the top job, there's some discord over the use of the negative interest rates and the sort of mechanisms and tools the ECB should be using at this point. What did you come up with? Uh, how are we expected to uh, judge the views of the, the north versus the south on that governing council? 
Well, we did a bit of fun work ahead of Lagarde coming in, and with all of the talk about whether someone northern or southern was supposed to be uh, coming in, obviously that debate has become more fierce over the years. We took a look at speeches that have been done by governing council members to see whether there's a difference in what people talk about. Um, and we found that indeed, if you look at the uh, the national governors uh, for the different years on central banks, you see that there is indeed quite a difference with northern people talking more about monetary topics, southern people talking more about growth, labor, issues, for example. Um, and that is actually, that's that's become larger, those differences um, after the crisis, which is quite obvious uh, with yeah. countries like Spain. I'm really interested in this. And certainly countries such as Italy and Greece on my travels have been bemoaning the Northern European attitude, and I think very fairly as well, towards immigration, towards labour issues as well. Has, has that come up at all? Because you mentioned labour. So I'm just interested, because I know a lot of people I speak to in Italy, and I, I go over there fairly frequently for professional reasons, and they are devastated at the way immigration is just being ignored by Northern Europeans. I'm wondering if that's seeping through into monetary at all. If you, if you look at central bank issues, we don't see immigration no, pop okay. up all that much. But you do see it in uh, commission issues, right? I mean, if you look mm. at, the, um, at the priorities that have been, have been discussed, and you see that Italy brings up time and time again that we should be focusing more on migration. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, we've seen the Turkey deal done by the previous commission, um, but that, of course, has not helped Italy all that much um, with people coming in more from the so south. So the old hackneyed view is that the Northern Europeans want to hold back on more central bank action or certain easing action and the southerners just want to go out and spend a lot more money is that hackneyed and jaded and just not true um well i mean if you look just at the focus your research of actually endorse that view well, the interesting thing is that you see, at least in terms of speech, you see that they do, that people from the South do focus more on growth issues, which I think, you know, it's logical if you focus more on growth issues that you would also uh, be more in favor of easing, um, especially given the growth environment these countries have seen. But then when they, when uh, you look at just the board members of the ECB, um, there you see no difference at all. So it feels like once uh, people do get appointed on the board that they have more of a neutral Eurozone view, which I think in a sense says that uh, anyone that gets appointed to the ECB board, think of Lagarde, a new, uh, think of Isabel Schnabel from Germany, that they will take more of a holistic Eurozone approach that uh, that is not necessarily focused very much on where the, the country is The issue of the ECB has been how to express those views and the way some of the Germans have been expressing those views has been simply to resign because they haven't necessarily had the ability to vote at that particular time on, on rates. What do you make of some of the changes Christian Lagarde wants to bring about where you have a more normal compared to the rest of uh, the world in terms of central banks' ability to vote on key issues? Would that be welcome, do you think? Well, I think that Lagarde has some work to do um, with uh, the current divisions that we see on the governing council. I mean, I don't think that we need to overstate it either. Um, I think that if you look at the past decisions that have been made, especially September, obviously, uh, quite controversial to some. Uh, but at the same time, I think the focus has been very much around the asset purchase program restart and not all that much around negative interest rates. So I think that there is... Uh, there seems to be a bit of a wedge between uh, some northern and southern governing council members, but we also shouldn't overdo how large that is at the moment. Um, central banks are getting involved more and more with climate issues as well. We're hearing it from Madame Lagarde today. We've heard it a lot from Mark Carney over the last couple of years or so. Shouldn't they just stick to their knitting or is this absolutely pivotal to the world going forward that they need to uh, get involved in this debate? 
Well, the thing is that you're, I mean, in a roundabout way, and especially the way that Carney, for example, has approached this, has been very much focusing on financial stability risk that comes from, for example, stranded assets due to climate change. Um, and these issues are, I think, important to, uh, to keep into account. But then again, the mandate continues to be um, uh, inflation-focused. And I think that in, in, in the short term, that is, that is where the broad focus of the issue is. Or is that just a cunning remain. plot to get us to spend a load of money on infrastructure and, and, and force the Germans to create a, a massive green fund where they actually start spending a bit more money, maybe. Right. Maybe it's part of that. I, I think we're all looking out to 2020 and trying to work out what's going to be different, what's going to change. And this year we've been marked by a year of negative rates across many of the core economies. Ten-year yields have been plunging ever lower. What does 2020 bring and what's the ECB action and what do you think the markets are going to look like in terms of yields? Oh, well, if you, I mean, if you look at the ECB now, then it looks very much like we're, we're going to have, we're in for quite a dull year. If we see the economy sort of slugging along at a very slow pace, then there's no real need for the ECB to step in. I mean, um, Draghi on his way out has set a very particular forward guidance um, that makes it very difficult for the ECB to really sway either way um, unless you start to see a real recession uh, happening. And what does so. a dull year mean for markets? Could that be positive if it's a dull year? Because uh, let's face it, had a very uncertain year this year. So dull might be welcome. It, it, that might be welcome, yeah, and especially for central bankers. It's, it's always good if central bankers can be a little dull. And after Draghi, we may need some of that uh, in Europe. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.